Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the April 25th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, women for Orange County board member Felicity Figueroa will muse with us about the much-treasured annual Great American Ride-In. It's the 35th. It's returning to the community, though, after a three-year hiatus. The public is welcome to attend May 6th, mid-morning to early afternoon at the Delhi Community Center. Lots of details when we talk in our first segment. In the second segment... Families Ford CEO Madeline her niece will return with the challenges changes and expansions of their operations to serve families all around Orange County they'll be a part of the help them home giving day 24 hours with 25 nonprofits on April 26 see what I did there we'll be right back don't go away all Welcome back to the show. Our first guest, it's a pleasure for all of us, is Felicity Figueroa, activist with a rather broad portfolio who will today wear her hat as board member of Women for Orange County and chairwoman of the Great American Write-In about the return of the much-cherished, most intentional, heady annual ritual, this Great American Write-In. I think it was over a decade ago when she last appeared on Ask a Leader to talk about it. It's time we, we bring her back on. A little, Just a little introduction about her. Abundant affiliations with leading roles, including Gerente de Ventas. And I think that might be, is, Felicity, is that another way of saying salesperson? A sales manager. Okay. I checked it out. So I thought, wait a minute. But it was in lowercase, so I thought she's tipping ahead. So that's that gets into her. She does teach and tutor Spanish, too. That's one of her other official roles are her in her past record as library task force. Each one, teach one at Woodbridge High School, Progressive Christians Uniting, the Orange County Chapter, AIDS Walk. Orange County, Orange County Progressive Summit, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, Irvine United Congressional Church, and Orange County Equality Coalition. And I also already mentioned the tutoring. Those are her official roles. She's affiliated with the most extensive list of grassroots organizations. We're just going to leave it there. But most people know her for just like hyphen or name organization locally. Felicity completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Anthropology, Sociology and Linguistics and Studies at Boston University. That was where you got some training, and but the uh, other was at Hampshire College. She comes to us today from Irvine after having been on the road in Sacramento. She's going to wedge us in on this busy schedule of hers. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Felicity Figueroa. Well, thanks so much, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited about the write-in that's coming up in less than two weeks. Right, May so 6th. And- very we're going to timely um, interview. Uh, well, that's right. And we we're doing this now, folks, so people get it on their calendar, May 6th. But first, the origin story and a tribute to co-founder Molly Lyon. And I don't know if Felicity knows all of this. I think I knew about seven eighths. Molly was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. 
and grew up in Seattle and was an Italian-American family. She left the Pacific Northwest and headed to San Francisco Bay Area, where she met her husband, Leon. They collected and studied contemporary art. So there's a, you can see there's a, there's a skip here from, and I don't think Molly ever got a college education. She got her education in life and became a most, was a very most sophisticated role model to all who knew her. The, as I was saying, they were collecting and studied contemporary art and they donated pieces to the Newport Art Harbor Museum and the Orange County Philharmonic Society and other cultural organizations. But Molly's true passion was politics. And I think, I hope, did Felicity, did you have a chance to meet Molly at least a couple of times? Yes, I was lucky enough to um, know her when I first moved to Orange County back in um, 1991. I had just... um, moved to back to California from um, Mexico City, and I had no idea who to vote for in the local elections. So luckily, I found, uh, I think, one of the original members of Women For. I can't even remember how her name came across my in my field of vision. And that's how I was originally introduced to Women For Orange County. And at that time, I believe Molly Lyon was still part of that organization. And I first heard about the Great American Write-In which had been going on since 1986. 86. So Molly yeah. was an avid supporter of Planned Parenthood. That might have been another overlapping co- uh, coalescing there. Fundraising chair of Community Action Fund, and she was an active Democrat. Also active in fair housing campaign. Then a Fullerton resident, she walked door to door and handed out literature in her upscale Sunny Hills neighborhood. Also, she was one of the co-founders, an annual grassroots effort to mobilize citizens. We're going to talk about this, how it works to write thousands of letters to lobby elected officials about important, breaking social political issues. And she was named in 1995 by Orange County Metro Magazine, the 10 most influential person in 95. And she lived amidst the 1%, I think even the half percent circles, I think where she threw, I'm just going to quickly put one more personal bio there is with a baby shower she threw me at her home on Linda Island. And she said, oh, Don, Don Bren lives just over there. So it was sort of, sort of remarkable, the circles that she was among. So her founding proposition was that she would grow the great American right and so large it had to be held and there's there's different oral traditions about this whether it would fill the Anaheim Convention Center or the Angel Stadium I am mixed on which one it was so that is the co-founding origin story and the I don't know if you want to just give me a few highlights of your mingling with the grassroots activists that I noticed we're always wearing at least five or six hats of different affiliations. So any highlights that you would like to share with us, Felicity? Well, I mean, uh, I am very indebted to Molly Lyons for starting this annual event back in 86. She was still running it, I think, through the 90s. And then in the 2000s, um, the wonderful Ruth Gluck took it over. Um, at that point, it was still being held at the University Club at UCI, and I believe they had around 40 organizations there and generated around 1,700 pieces of mail. The way, the way this event works is that a lot of, usually it uh, started out at 40 organizations, now we're up to around 70 organizations, and these are grassroots groups, 
uh, nonprofits, and any um, organization that's interested in promoting um, education, healthcare, human and civil rights, and um, the environment. So we ask them to bring their information to tables, which we have set up beforehand. Um, and they also bring pre-written or sample letters or postcards that they are going to have available on their tables that we invite the attendees to the event, and it is a free event for the attendees, to sign and send off to their legislators. And these can be local city council members, Orange County supervisors, state assembly members, state senators, the president, congressional reps, our federal senators. And um, I remember when I first started attending the write-in, there were also groups that had letters to corporate decision makers, even in other countries. Um, the makers of controversial medications. And I remember that um, when I was there as an attendee, I would get letters back from all of these politicians and also from international organizations sometimes. So it was a very effective method of um, making our voices heard um, here locally and actually around the world. And let's talk about including highlights in the retrospective is this was also is also a place where candidates that are running early. Our state senator, David Min, was then a congressional candidate. That's the first time I met him was there at the Great American Right. And so they're they're all hovering and they want to mix with all these very engaged people. That's very true, especially if there's an election coming up. We usually get quite a few uh, politicians and candidates. I remember one of the first venues that we used uh, after the University Club at UCI was the Lakeview Senior Center, also in Irvine. And there, Loretta Sanchez would be there every year. And I remember at one point she spoke about the difference between, you know, email was just starting back then, the difference between getting an email and getting a handwritten letter. And she says, as a politician, I pay much more attention to, you know, a handwritten letter that's written by one of my constituents that's personalized. And she began to know her constituents through the letters that were sent at the Great American Write-In. Um, I know people nowadays say, well, email, you know, online petitions, but uh, people that we've spoken to, candidates and, and political leaders alike, have said that handwritten letters and pre-written letters with a personal message still have a much greater effect on, on their thinking. Yes, and I'm still hearing that in any webinar, a Zoom that is looking for, you know, offering calls to action, that they remind people that personal letter not the sort of, uh, you know, the, the g generated by the organization kind of letter is the one that, right. that reaches that. So, and then there was the scare, the, the biomedical, the, uh, right. I'm trying to, so anthrax. The, thank you. I'm going to search that while we're on together here. So the anthrax scare was what stopped a lot of that letter writing there. We, we had to work it around a different way because no mail going into the house office buildings was getting opened up because anthrax arrived in haha ha, an envelope so that there were you know well, these adjustments well, we, made we did at that point switch to postcards because that's the postcards right. didn't have that problem and that's why today we have we offer the exhibitors um the option of using either letters or pre-printed or um the blank postcards that we'll have available on the table for the attendees to write their messages 
For those of you who've just tuned in to Ask a Leader, my guest is Felicity Figueroa, community organizer and particularly board member of Women for Orange County and chair about this year's resumption of the much-loved institution, the Great American Write-In, May 6th at the Delphi Center in Santa Ana. We're getting more details. We're just stringing out there so everybody keeps writing it in <laughs> to their calendar because you learn, there's so much to learn because what each of these grassroots organizations choose are topics that are that are breaking that need attention now it's going to be heard as a a measure in a legislative arena or it's a corporate maneuver that is, that needs to be now finally dealt with the science is just too too much uh, for certain application of some kind of a of a, a commodity in the world in the marketplace so it's it's very current so it's very edifying and you've got this benefit it's an agglomeration of grassroots activism you've got side by side all of these chapters in orange county it can't get richer than that (laughs) so i'm going to let you keep musing about where um you know some other kinds of retrospectives while we're talking about how it works still and will work right well uh, as um you mentioned claudia this will be our 35th year we were all ready to have the event go live in March of 2020, and I think 11 days before it was scheduled to happen, you know, the, the whole world shutdown came upon us. So we kind of took a hiatus, as you mentioned, for the three years. But we're back again this year. We're limiting the groups to only 60. I believe we had 73 signed up for 2020. But we do want to be conscientious of the fact that, you know, COVID is still an issue um, and we don't want people to crowd up as much as they usually have at the write-in, where we get over 550 visitors usually. But we are going to make it a safe event. We, As you mentioned, we have groups there, everything from um, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense to the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. We have a lot of groups on housing, um, Council on American Islamic Relations, National Council of Jewish Women, um, People's Budget Orange County, and quite a few, um, I personally do a lot of work uh, with immigration services here in Orange County, and we'll have both the Orange County Rapid Response Network and the Orange County Justice Fund there. Um, so pretty much any issue that you might be interested in, you'll find someone representing it in letters that you can write about it um, at the write-in. And I just want to um, shoehorn that Stephanie Campbell, who was on the show last week, wearing her Compassion and Choices hat, she will be wearing her Americans United for the Separation of Church and State hat at the Great American Right, one of those 60 groups. She will be there, as you said, many hats to go around here in Orange County, but we're always anxious to get more people to take on some of those hats. So please do contact us if you're interested in any of these issues. The only other thing I wanted to mention is back in 2012, I think, 2013, um, we decided that since this Women for Orange County is, in fact, an Orange County group, it's not an Irvine group, and we made the decision to move the write-in from the Lakeview Senior Center in Irvine to the Delhi uh, Community Center, which is in Santa Ana, because we did want to make it an event that was open and accessible to all of the county. And since then, one of the other things we do, we reach out to school districts and, you know, history professors, government professors, social studies and the like um, in both the high schools, local high schools and in the colleges and universities, because we really would love the, their uh, teachers and professors to encourage students to come 
because we think this is a great uh, lesson in civic participation. You know, kids spend so much time on um, their phones, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, and we want them to realize that they can still write letters and, and change their own future, which is so important these days. Um, well, wait, so Felicity. We, we get about 100 students to come, which is, which let's, is great for us. Let's bridge that, though. Here's an opportunity. They can drag their little TikTok app right into the middle of the great American write-in, and they're going to show this is how civics is done. It's like super hot here with all of these, and it's a kind of it's a little bit biased toward a more senior demographic, but not it's not exclusive. It's pretty mixed. But the TikTokers can uh, can can make a big demonstration there. I think that would be kind of cool. Are you? Yeah. I mean, let's do it. Let's do it. The other thing we have um, the last few years, we've been very lucky to have the. Orange County Human Relations, they have a triptych, which is a three-dimensional um, set of, I believe, 10 panels that outline the history of civil rights in Orange County, which is extremely informative and educational. Um, I, every time I, I read parts of it, I, I learn something I didn't know about that history in Orange County. It's some very surprising, some very uh, shocking events that happened here over the last, I guess, 100 years. So that will be another, um, that will be set up at the write-in. People can walk through and, and read all about that also. So we, we talked about elected showing up. Do they do they get some kind of a check-in with you so you can, because you do have an agenda where there are some formal comments that you get everybody to quiet down where they're knocking off all their letters and postcards. Um, so in are electeds, uh, or electeds and candidates logging in with you some time for that sort of public address that is given sort of in the interim of the 9.30 to 1.30 May 6th session? Well, we do, you're right. We do it around noon, 11.30 or noon. Um, just have a very short kind of call to attention from the stage at the Dell High to welcome people, to thank them for spending their Saturday morning with us, to let them know that lunch is on the way. We do serve pizza for lunch. We have some breakfast items also, so we feed you. We would not introduce candidates, but we allow candidates to come in just like any other attendee, and they can walk around and introduce themselves to Orange County residents are there. You know, apart from being a a superlative letter-writing event, this is always a wonderful networking opportunity, especially after the pandemic when we're just kind of getting back to in-person events. Um, We ask the um, exhibitors to be set up by nine because we hope that from 9 to 9.30, they are going to be going around to the booth, kind of introducing themselves and finding out what's happening at the other organizations that they might not be aware of. If there are politicians, if there are, let's say, city council members or um, assembly people, state senators, I did take some flyers up. I was just in Sacramento with the ACLU this past weekend, and I did take flyers up and try to um, leave them at some of our Orange County legislators' offices, so they will be aware of the event if they're not already, and um, they are all welcome to attend. And we will try and at least give a list of people who are in attendance at that moment at the write-in from the stage. But we don't really have people come up and talk because, after all, it is primarily a letter-writing event. We want to give people as much time as they need. And again, people don't have to be there from 9.30 to 1.30. It's somewhat of a drop-in event. They can come for half an hour. They can come for the whole time. It's, um, it's very open in that way. But we do ask people to pre-register through Eventbrite if they can, just to save time at check-in. 
right? I'm going to offer that too, but because um, I know Felicity's not endorsing the half an hour drop in because it really I think it's important to book at least maybe an hour and a half minimum yeah, because there is there is so much to learn from people that have been involved for decades some of them in this or there are people that are growing something kind of new and 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 I I just have to say in the timeline that you were offering earlier is the reason there was there was a real mushrooming of organizations appearing in the spring of 2017 correlated to a sense of helplessness, a lot of people right. that are civically engaged, a helplessness they felt after November 2016. So this Great American Write-In was a real bomb for people who thought, where do I get myself right. started here? So so that, that 2017 year was where things really took off and yes, got on and a lot even of people. This year we have a lot of new organizations that it will be their first time at the Write-In. And a lot of them are run by very, you know, people in their 20s and early 30s. So we are hoping to kind of increase the demographic of people that we, both the, those that are tabling and those that come to visit. So you're very right on that. On that, that note. Well, I just want to bring that in there so people are understanding. So the, as we've said, the public is welcome. It's May 6th, starts at 930 in the morning and goes till 130 in the afternoon at the Delhi Community Center in Santa Ana, and the actual address is 505 East Central Avenue. There is, it's a, it's right inside a neighborhood, so there, you can tell you're getting close because there's, there's no parking. <laughs> it's, oh, by point. the way, speaking about that, I was just talking, there's a small church, Catholic church, right beside the Delhi Center, oh. and they have graciously offered to allow our attendees to use their parking lot, so we shouldn't have much of a, of a parking problem this year. Okay, because usually I've seen activities right next door at that church campus there. Well, so I yes, so, so we maybe are there's... lucky that they do not have any baptisms or first communions on May six. So. Oh, okay, um, so that's squared away there. Well, yeah, May Cinco yeah. de Mayo is the day before. Maybe they're all going to rest off. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> so something like that. So as you said, students used to get we knew some pretty cool high school teachers that brought entire classes over there so they would right. get civics credit for that but um do you have any favorite stories retrospectively so people can see where we're going with this on May 6th this year what students sort of had their eyes opened or they had they sort of recognized there are these veterans of grassroots activities that are leading by example any of those kind of stories felicity um, I was uh, just looking back at the articles that have been written, and in one of them I saw that uh, a senior at University High School had remarked after attending the, the write-in, he said, there are so many issues I haven't looked at or even heard about, and now I feel connected, that I can actually make a difference. And I think that's absolutely the most important lesson that any young person or not-so-young person can take away. All of us can make a difference. And um, that's why our motto is the pen is mightier than the sword. And the reaction we've had to over 35 years of the write-in has definitely proved that that is true. And we're not filling the Anaheim Convention Center yet. Not but yet. I feel every year we get closer. So right. hold right. on and maybe in a few years you can visit us there. So I'm, I have used all these superlatives of, of endearment about the great American write-in, but it's, it's because 
of I, I think I started about getting to know these mavens when you did. I was here, moved in ninety one as well, Felicity. So there you oh. go. And so, I just I think there will be something very special as people have returned to annual rituals post or unwinding down the pandemic. It isn't over, folks. That the the three year hiatus is going to bring a sort of special sort of a wistful kind of chemistry between all these activists. Yes, and one thing that's very, I think, very beautiful and kind of ties it to Ruth Gluck um, that I mentioned, who basically ran the write-in for about 10 years in the middle um, after Molly stepped down. Her daughter has been coming and kind of, you know, carrying on the mantle, and I just checked with her, and she will be there this year, too. So it's a nice connection to our past. Um, and looking towards the future, I feel that we are going to get, it's going to be a different energy there. We are going to have PPE available. We will have masks and hand sanitizers. We will have the doors open so there's airflow. But you're right, there's going to be a very special kind of energy this year that we're really looking forward to. And it's also, as we just almost didn't quite say it, but the Delhi Center has different kinds of entryways and patios so this can allow for the crowd to sort of manage different levels of you know exposure with each other and you know besides the personal protective equipment there's just a matter of spreading outdoors and I think that'll probably be very consciously accommodated I would think wouldn't it? Absolutely yes that's why we're keeping the numbers low we in the past have had the whole hallway packed with groups that because they didn't fit in the main room but um, this year, probably those groups will either be in a separate room or outside on the patio, as you mentioned. We want to make it as safe as possible for everyone. Excellent. Well, Felicity, I'm thanking you so much for being on the show today. And My I pleasure. will see you on May 6th, if not sooner. Wonderful. See you all at the write-in. Don't hang Thank up on Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you. So my guest was Felicity Figueroa, community organizer and particularly board member of Women for Orange County and chair about this year's resumption of the Great American Write-In May 6th at the Del High Center in Santa Ana. We'll be back after a station break with Madeline Hernice, Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward, speaking about her organizations transitioning their clients as COVID-19 pandemic benefits and protections wind down. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Returning to the show is my next guest, Madeline Hernice, Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward, here to speak about her organizations transitioning their clients as COVID-19 pandemic benefits protections are scaling back. Families Forward is a nonprofit organization helping Orange County families, in quotes, in need, achieve, and maintain self-sufficiency, end of quotes, in their charter. They're located in Irvine. Madeline began a career at Families Forward in 2012 as a housing specialist. And for the past, it's now 11 years, she's been working her way up. She's been in the C-suite now, though, for four or five years. And she's been instrumental in designing, developing, and implementing Families Forward's strategic housing acquisition and partnership programs. Under her direction, 
Families Ford saw an increase of nearly 75% in their housing continuum while maintaining a reputation in the community as leaders in quality care. We'll have her reflect and examine uh, the extent to which local, state, and federal assistance withdrawn due to suspended COVID emergency measures is having an impact on families forward clients in all areas where services are delivered and how Families Forward is managing that transition. She comes to us today from her office in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Madeline Hernese. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Well, thank you. First, to give listeners some context, I'd like for you, Madeline, to rank Families Forward's priorities, the, uh, the shares of the resource pie in the service that you provide, the housing, meals, health, and career coaching? Well, Families Forward Services, they're all equally important to creating lasting stability. And so I can, um, I'd love to tell you a little bit more about the housing first model and the housing first approach. And the work that we do with families experiencing homelessness, we know that housing is the foundation. Getting a family into a home right away who's experiencing being unhoused, and then we can work on what are the lasting solutions. So that's where we're talking about career coaching, financial literacy support, mental health counseling. Obviously, access to food is a critical piece, but it's a critical front door for many new families that may not know where services are their first ask might be that food pantry, knowing that their budget is short for the month and really it's between rent and food and where can they get access to those resources. So the food and the career and everything really is uh, related to each other, building off of the foundation that home is first and home is the building block. So then thank you for that. And we will give you an opportunity to pitch the project, the help them home. That'll be the the, the conclusion here. But for, before that though, I'd like to know with the sort of emergency housing that Families Forward is grappling with, with the recent weather being cooler and a lot wetter, there's fentanyl, uh, you know, overdoses on the streets, uh, there's, there's chaos in local government, you know, it's taking oxygen and resources from the agency's original charter. So how, how are those things, uh, how are they being factors in what you need to be doing? The important thing to remember about families experiencing homelessness is that they truly are an invisible population. Um, I think when you think of an individual, maybe a chronic individual experiencing homelessness, you might have a stereotypical example come to mind, panhandling on the street corner at the bus bench. But that's truly not the population that we serve. We are ex serving those families that are invisible, that are sleeping in their vehicles on a safe residential street where, you know, my son, Joe, his mom is going to let Joe stay in there. I'll stay in my vehicle and we're not going to get bothered. Um, and it's really about trying to normalize the situation for their children. We've had families that are camping at O'Neill Park telling their kids it's a vacation. So some of these factors that you mentioned, while there are many outside variables that, of course, impact our families and we're always there to be able to meet their needs, we're not serving the same population in that level of chronicity. We're really looking at making sure we can capture families as quickly as possible, especially when there are children involved, to avoid that generational impact and trauma of homelessness. Okay, thank you. Well, the trends in local government funding, they're now... Um, Freeing up, I'm really interested in knowing. It's a question I've been asking since a maybe two and a half, three year old local community development meeting about the extended child credit act 
the extended child credit provision, then the discussion was the extent to which the Orange County Board of Supervisors were withholding a lot of funding for social safety net kinds of things. So I'd like for you to talk about how the new composition of the Orange County Board of Supervisors has made funds more available for you to to go and secure that kind of housing that you're putting the first priority on. We're certainly seeing trends in local governments that have shifted, primarily due to the pandemic as well. Um, an opportunity, a silver lining, so to speak, is, is the opportunity to really focus and emphasize on eviction diversion. So trying to capture families upstream before they become homeless. And that's really something that's here to stay. We're seeing a lot of that trending in the right direction, that not only can we help families that have um, are experiencing being unhoused tonight, but we can also really focus parallelly on what that programming looks like to avoid that fall over the edge of the cliff. And so those upstream prevention models have been really critical, and we're starting to see a lot of trends and shifts in that of the funding that's available for that. Um, I think it's been a really critical piece of the infrastructure, not necessarily just focusing on the triage style of an emergency room, okay, who's who's bleeding, but actually how can we get some preventative health measures and preventative work measures to ensure that families don't fall over the cliff. So can you speak a little bit more, though, about the kind of role that the current administration on the Board of Supervisors has in supporting you to a fuller extent? Yeah, we're seeing that there's a significant uh, shift in trend in that the the current administration is supportive of those preventative uh, prevention funding opportunities. And this is not related, but we're also seeing that healthcare is really coming to the fold, right? And talk about uh, the CalOptima, CalAIM dollars that are going to also cover housing and housing navigation and other services to make sure that a stable family is, is also healthy and thriving. So we are seeing a lot of these parties working together and collectively trying to kind of support not only the service provider, but its public and nonprofit partnership together. But it's a really, it must be a whole different day for all of you at, at Families Forward because that now the, the money that was obligated for those use, it's now freeing up. When did you start seeing that change? hard to pinpoint an exact time only because COVID has really, there's a lot of COVID era funding, the pandemic relief stimulus funding, ARPA. So it's hard to pinpoint. Um, the biggest challenge though, Claudia, is even with the freed up funding is there aren't housing units for families. So although uh, we, we have additional funding that can help meet the needs of the families, the biggest challenge then comes back to housing vacancy. And while the market is getting better, it is still very challenging to There's find- There's NIMBYs. That's a NIMBY problem. It's very challenging to, uh, to find housing units that are available, affordable, everything in between. So so it's, it's one, one kind of delayed dilemma turns into another dilemma. And so right. we're really rallying to understand, you know, wh where can we have a drop in the bucket? So we've really been focusing ourselves on affordable housing. Um, and again, we are a drop in the tiny bucket here because uh, our eight units that we just opened in December in Costa Mesa is nowhere near the need, but it's something. And the really critical thing about the affordable housing that we provide is that it comes with really intentional economic mobility, upward mobility programs. We want this to be a launching pad, a lily pad for the family. We do not want to have a family stay forever. We can't build and fill. We really have to create flow through the entire ecosystem of affordable housing so more families that need it when they need it most have access to it. 
No family says, I might be homeless in seven years, so let me get on this wait list now. But that's kind of the model in the affordable housing world because it is so such a demand that they, you just can't keep up. And so your wait lists are seven to 10 years long. The units that we operate are for families that are experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity. So there is no wait list. We will never have a wait list because we know that a family situation can change day by day. And when that unit is available, we want to ensure that that unit is made available to a family that needs it most. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Madeline Hernice, Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help families in need and achieve and maintain self-sufficiency. It's headquartered here in the city of Irvine. So then I don't know if you want to say uh, more about current assistance. I'm really trying to look at how Families Forward is transitioning with the benefits that were a part of the COVID pandemic sorts of aid, whether uh, how you're transitioning, were you able to get out in front, seeing that some of these benefits were going to end, how you advised families forward clients that this was coming and how are how are you managing that at this date in late April? At Families Forward, we're seeing an increase in need across the board. So starting with the food pantry, but across all of our programs. As I mentioned, our prevention program, families at risk of losing housing, families that have fallen into homelessness. I mean, since January of this year, we've had over 300 new families sign up for our food bank, um, which is is triple the normal amount. And that's really in preparation for not only the supplemental benefits that have gone away, but the power of your dollar doesn't stretch as far. Um, So even with those benefits and the the rising cost of our food prices, families can't make their dollar stretch that far. And so really being able to kind of step in, increase accessibility. We've gone from our monthly food pantry to weekly food pantry, knowing that we want to be available when families need it most. Um, And also looking at some of our extended hours. So really evaluating, you know, when do families need to access food? When can they get here, especially if there's a work schedule? And how do we make it as accessible as possible? So that is something that we're continuing to work on and other ways that we've been hopefully able to kind of get ahead of the curve here. But the the need is real. And we're continuing to see an increase every month in the number of families that are, are requesting to access food. So were you able to sort of roll into your interactions with clients that uh, this is coming and we're uh, we're going to change our food pantry times of opening and uh, uh, availability and eligibility to accessing that? But uh, were you able to do that? And so they could see that you are being as proactive as possible. I'm just trying to figure out how this all works. I think it just was a natural evolution working alongside, of course, our volunteers. Our volunteers are the heart and soul of the food bank. They truly are the oil in that machine. So working alongside with them to help provide their um, feedback on what they're seeing, but also they're they're the voice with the families. They're the ones who are working directly with them on a day-to-day basis. So making sure that they have the knowledge set to be able to explain, you know, what's going on, what's available, increasing our variety of food. The primary focus of our food pantry is, is to be a supplemental program. And historically, we've really relied on non-perishable items, but we know that we need to increase the variety of the food to ensure that every family has, you know, a healthy meal on their plate. And so really working with our volunteers to access more, you know, grocery rescue and fresh produce from the farms and really making sure that we have a good variety and we lean on our volunteers volunteers to help communicate and to work with the families to make sure that we're meeting with them where they are. Well, thank you for that, Madeline. And as I was looking around the website, 
it's pretty clear the food pantry, that's mainly where's the interface between the volunteers and the clients. The other services that you're rendering with the housing and the counseling and all that, you're sort of, that's, there's a firewall. There aren't volunteers involved in that. There's professional individuals dealing with those interventions. So I, I think it's it's kind of clear and you're reinforcing as you break down what's happening at the food pantry, what role that volunteers play in that. It's a perfect place for volunteers to maintain your uh, professional, the credential kind of role with those more other sort of sensitive kinds of service deliveries. Absolutely. And I, I do think, though, that Families Forward um, is pretty unique in the way we deploy our volunteers beyond the food pantry. So if you call the front desk, you're getting a volunteer. That warm voice on the other line where a family is telling their story and it's a heavy story is not a voicemail box. It's a volunteer. So there's a, a line of professionalism and making sure that we have that the educated staff to be able to kind of take it to the next level. But we do. Our volunteers are really critical at every level. Okay. Well, thank you for that too. So we're talking about the transitioning and how about the extent to which the state and federal resources are rolling back? How is that affecting Families Forward? Families Forward is still seeing an increase in um, in need due to the rollback of the extended benefits. So we are continuing to kind of grapple with what that need is going to be, monitoring the trend, looking at our data. Are we starting to see, you know, maybe a peak and then a slowdown? And how do we kind of forecast what that need is so we can be better prepared to meet the demand? How, when are we going to peak and when are we going to level out and how do we best prepare ourselves to meet that demand? So I just got a press release last week about, this is the county's My Benefits Cal and I guess state two to Benefits Cal and Enhanced public assistance benefits enrollment portal, does that at all have a role and assist what Families Forward is doing for clients? Families Forward will work with families individually to help them access that portal and access those benefits. Um, but we are wholly separate from that. And so we're really here to be that case management support, the aid to ensure that we can help them navigate a tricky uh, system. Um, So the fact that it's more accessible and easier to access everything in one place will certainly be helpful, but it is a wholly separate um, enrollment portal that does not affect us. Okay. But are you in a sort of a particular capacity to let agencies know how better they could be administering their program because you know what it is from the client experience? Is that an important role for you? Absolutely. We are here to be the voice of the families. And so when we see that there's an opportunity, whether it's from um, a systems level um, issue or an enrollment issue, it's really critical that we can uh, provide that feedback. Um, We were one of the main providers of the California state level emergency rental assistance program um, during the peak of the pandemic. And it was really helpful because everything was kind of moving in real quick motion um, to be able to provide that critical uh, feedback for the families that we were seeing in Orange County and how they weren't able to access that system. And we did see some great improvements. It was it was a little bit of a building the plane as you're flying it, especially at the peak of the pandemic. But we do believe that that is our role, of course, to be the voice of the families. Well, I have to say the more retrospectives I'm hearing and reading about that making, you know, building the plane while you're flying it in every possible sector of living. And so this is what it looked like for families forward with the the housing emergency needs. So that's, I mean, we're just going to get some very interesting chronicles and 
people operating in good faith like you all and others that were uh, answering questions without data, but making it sound like they had the data. So I, I just hats off to Families Forward for, for finding a way to send send the data, send the analysis up the pipeline so that agencies could be responding effectively and where we had no clue about so many things at once. Well, why don't we give you a chance here to, if there's a way that community members can contribute, you've talked a little bit about what they can do with the food pantry and there's somebody at the front desk that's personally taking some important uh, information, but let's talk about what else they're doing and then please do pitch the Help Them Home campaign that will be tomorrow. That is t- the day after the broadcast. We're recording this today on the 24th, but on the 26th, we'll talk about that. But first, what else can community members contribute to in supporting your clientele? Like most organizations coming out of the pandemic, really looking at our volunteer pipeline. I think that would be just a critical message I would love to share. Life changes, reprioritization, um, aging volunteers, lots of reasons why, you know, we haven't been able to be at full capacity with the number of volunteers that we saw pre-COVID. I mean, our volunteers, as I mentioned, they're critical infrastructure. And typically we see about 26,000 volunteer hours a year. Um, so really, I would love to encourage, you know, those that have the ability or the desire to get involved, please, you know, reach out to us and find out more ways to volunteer, um, volunteering on a regular basis or volunteering on a one-off basis. Involve your whole family. We've recently started Family Volunteer Night. Um, as, a, as a mom myself with two littles, there are no opportunities for young children to get involved with young philanthropy and really starting from a young age and, and trying to relate to a child on how do you feel when you're hungry? How do we how do we help the ch- children in our neighboring schools or, or, or in our classroom who may be experiencing um, housing or food insecurity? So getting involved, love to, to pitch for that. And then, of course, we have a really exciting day on April 26th. It's our Help Them Home Giving Day. Help Them Home is actually a collective effort uh, with about 24 other nonprofit agencies, and we're all rallying together with the common goal of helping them home. For Families Forward, it's helping families home. But you'll have a number of agencies that are rallying together to raise, I I believe, almost $2 million is our goal. I think it's maybe $1.75 million, and I know we can do that as a community, and we're all working together. Let's get rid of these silos. Let's band arms together and figure out a way to really make an impact and move the needle on all subpopulations of homelessness. Although our priority is working with families with minor age children, we know that housing insecurity affects so many different populations and we want to be advocates to ensure that we can help all of them home. So that is Giving Day on April 26th. You can log on, you can give, you can, you know, share, post, like our videos where we're going all out with an 80s theme. So please help me with my own pre-embarrassment and all these fun 80s videos and just like and uh, reshare those posts. We'd appreciate it. And it's 24 hours, so people have the whole day to do that. There are lots of giving day events going on. We'll have our own little tin cup rattling probably in May. Date hasn't been set, but it, there's a there's a lot. But I think it's pretty cool, Madeline, how 25 total nonprofits are participating together. That that will has there been anything quite like that? 
Yeah, this, so this was um, started, I believe, uh, seven years ago, and I, okay. could, I could be wrong on that. And it started with a small group, and we've just expanded and expanded. And it's truly sponsored by the OC Community Foundation, Orange County Community Foundation, really seeing a need to rally all the like agencies that are doing good work together to actually have a shared common goal. So it's been, and it's increasing every year, and we're excited to see the new partners join us this year. So I didn't notice the Orange County Community Foundation. I've seen that in previous releases. So that's uh, that's on me. I didn't recall that, yes, this is well institutionalized. And I couldn't talk about these efforts without a nod to our local University Hills, Rick Emmerling, who's been at it. He's been contributing for eight years. And that must, I, I think those kinds of commitments help people have a context. They have sort of overcome learning curves about what the charter is for an organization. So it's sort of, it should be getting easier. It should be getting, it just gets better with people's longer sustained affiliation that you must be noticing. Absolutely. And and really, you know, for those of you that know our, our beloved Rick Emerling, he has been such a critical, not only a volunteer in his, his shift, which actually he's doubled his commitment. He's now coming in two days a week. But the Giving Day Pledge, I mean, he has had a fundraising page for the last three years, and he outdoes himself every year. So if you want to, you know, donate to his page, I think he'd really appreciate it. And of course, let's, we're going to give him a big goal because he keeps outdoing himself every year. And the $2 million, is that Families Forward's goal, or is that all 25 nonprofit participating that's like the collective goal. I believe okay. it's 0.75 million. Our goal in this is to raise 125,000. Okay. Well, very good. So while we're talking about sustaining and building and growing Families Forward, I understand that you will have an additional location. Tell us about that and what services will be there and uh, the kinds of hours that it will be open for people to come in. As we've seen an increase in demand for services, we realized that um, we needed an opportunity to increase accessibility and reduce barriers for family. Of course, for those of you that are familiar with our office in Irvine, we're so grateful to have this great long history, rich history with the city of Irvine. But Families Forward does serve all of Orange County. Last year, we served families coming from 30 out of the 34 cities. Yes, yeah, and on that unincorporated. Uh-huh. So we really are an expansive program provider that serves all families throughout the county. So realizing that, we realized we didn't need a, a bigger building. We needed to increase accessibility, especially with transportation issues here locally. So to that note, we actually opened up our second location in the city of Santa Ana, and we're co-located with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Girls Inc., OC Human Relations, and some other notable nonprofits. For us, it's about increasing the synergy. We're all serving the same population in very different ways. For example, if you have a big who might notice that the little has some housing and security issues, what's that direct referral? And how can we help to uh, support the family unit as a whole, whether it's through mentorship, empowering, or housing and food security? So we really are rallying together in that. Um, and and we at the office, it'll be a walk-in point where families will be able to access services, let them know that there's a need, get access to case management, counseling, career services, anything that that family might need. It really is about increasing accessibility and reducing barriers for families. Well, that's really elegant that you're housed with those other organizations that have already been there for a little while, or is it just a new opening they've had since the pandemic sorts of closures? It's with the, the big, big sisters, brothers. big brothers. Yeah, it's their building, um, and they've been there a, a little while, and their goal is to increase the nonprofit presence. 
by having us co-locate together and really providing direct services together, not just admin back offices, but really making sure that we're delivering direct services together. Will there be a food pantry there as well? We won't have a large-scale food pantry like we do have in Irvine, but for the families that we're seeing, we'll be able to transport food there. So they'll be able to get their food there, but we won't have a walk-in food pantry presence, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, that's a very elegant kind of、uh, you know expansion of the the enterprise, as it were. Well, is there anything else you'd like to mention to listeners before we close? If you know of anybody who is in need of services, whether it's food, housing insecurity, or other support, please reach out to us. Please connect that family to the organization or call two one one. You'll be connected to a local organization. If, if these are families that are outside of the county,、um, we are here to serve the need and to ensure that families have a home, an opportunity to thrive. And the ability to create lasting stability for their children. So we can't do this work without you, and we just appreciate any support. Well, you mentioned the two one one is the mental health line. The nine eight eight been a a new sort of、um, an asset to families forward servicing households. So Families Forward actually has two full time counselors on staff, and so we typically will bring that in house. Now it's the long-term connectivity, the resources out there to ensure that we may be able to provide short-term solution-based care today. But what's the long-term therapeutic plan for mental health support for the entire family unit, the children, the parents, everything in between? And so that's where we rely on our community partners.、Um, so the nine eight eight, we have not had to have the ability to use that as part of the care plan because we have those counselors that are on site with us. As nine eight eight is an emergency situation, and the care plans are sustained effort. That's the distinction. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's very helpful, well, Madeline. I always thank you for bringing such a an amazingly comprehensive, professional, buttoned down kind of a nonprofit contribution here. Thank you for all your time today. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure speaking to you. My guest was Madeline Hernice. Chief Executive Officer of Families Forward, a nonprofit organization helping families achieve and maintain self-sufficiency, headquartered in the city of Irvine and now a satellite in Santa Ana. Well, that's my wrap. Next week's guests are going to be Orange County Communities Organized for Responsible Development Executive Director. Ellie Flores, and then Andy Knight, co-director of the Pacific Playwrights Festival at the South Coast Rep. And into the future, and in an effort to put on listeners' radars, Irvine Draw is already underway, getting public input about the mapping of the city council candidates' districts in which they're likely to run in the fall of 2024. Timelines—they're already set. I'm working with the city to get out long and short format coverage so that everyone has a chance to be fully informed and can contribute, just like with the California statewide mapping of districts two years ago. So, thanks for listening, everyone. Talk with you next week. <laughs>